This Sunday, we conclude our sermon series uh, looking over the recently approved vision frame, which is a a basis, a foundation for how our church uh, will move forward into the future. We looked at our uh, new mission statement, which is connecting people to Jesus, the spring of life. We've looked at our five essential values of what we are Uh, what we value here at our church and how we're going to make decisions reflective of those values. Uh, We looked at our strategy. How do we actually become uh, those kinds of people? How do we become that kind of church? We we worship together, we grow together, and we fellowship together. Uh, The last uh, part of this vision frame, however, is how do we actually measure our spiritual growth? How do we uh, measure what... uh, How do we measure success in our vision frame? And so we're going to be looking at that uh, through a series of questions that we'll get to at the end uh, of the message. Uh, But I want to encourage all of you to to really get to know the the details of this vision frame because it's more about our identity. It's more about our purpose, about how we can be the best church we can be here uh, in Jasper, up in these hills. Uh, And so this morning, we read from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 4, verses 23 uh, to 31. And we enter into a moment uh, where uh, Peter and John have just been released from prison uh, after being interrogated uh, by the Sadducees and the Pharisees, by the religious council, the same religious council that sentenced Jesus to death uh, for performing a miracle, for healing a man who had been sick most of his life uh, in the name of Jesus. And so they were arrested. They had been uh, put in prison. They'd been interrogated. uh, And this is uh, their response. The thing to remember here is that right before uh, the Pharisees let them go, uh, they promised, uh, they essentially said, you cannot speak about Jesus anymore. We do not want you to do this. We are going to be very... Uh, the consequences will be dire. And this consequences that they receive here, these threats, are very real. Again, because this is the same council, the same group of leaders uh, that had sentenced Jesus to death. So these threats were not idle. They were not uh, superficial. They were very real. And we read this in Acts 4, 23 to 31. On their release... Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. As a teenager, getting ready for school on time was less a habit and more a statistical anomaly. Uh, I didn't love waking up in the morning, so my typical routine consisted of my head popping off the pillow and rushing to get everything done before the bus arrived. Uh, After weeks of this, of forgetting my homework or lunch, of just running out the door, not ready for the day, my parents mandated that I get as much done as I could the night before. So following the directions, I did what was asked. I left my backpack by the front door, and it was ready. All my homework was in it. Uh, I laid out clothes and shoes for the next day. My lunch was already made the night before. And to my surprise, this new routine worked. It let me sleep in even longer, which was not what my parents intended. Uh, But middle school boys are often a little bit too clever for their own good. And so I rearranged other things to save even more time, and I could sleep even longer. So I showered the night before. My hair would be ridiculous, but that's okay. I wasn't that worried about it. Uh, Breakfast became optional, and I slept fully dressed. I would just wear what I was going to wear the next day. Uh, I kept this up until my parents saw the result of picture day, where I was forcefully reminded that getting ready was not about cutting corners, but being prepared for what the day might bring. Uh, In our two passages today, we're going to look at both of them. The Lord delivers a similar message to two groups about being ready for what he is about to do uh, for and through them. Now, Peter and the apostles needed to be ready to boldly proclaim the resurrection of Jesus to a hostile culture and fulfill their great commission, the commandment that Jesus had given them before he ascended into heaven. But on the other hand, the enslaved people of Israel needed to be ready to leave Egypt because the Lord was going to free them the very next morning. Now, when the Lord instructs his people about the Passover, Egypt had suffered a series of plagues designed to pressure Pharaoh into releasing the Israelites from slavery. When Pharaoh continued to refuse, the Lord sent one final calamity to persuade him. Unless he obeyed and released the Israelites, the children of God, the Spirit of God would kill the firstborn of every family in Egypt. And this brought terror to the Egyptians, but it brought salvation for the people of Israel. Their new freedom begins with a feast, where every detail reflects the urgency of their upcoming deliverance. So first, God resets their calendar, saying, this month is to be for you the first month of your year. This is your new New Year's Day. Passover reflects the moment their whole world changed. Before that day, they were slaves in Egypt, but after, they were free people bound for the promised land. The Lord also instructs them to prepare a meal, but this meal was a little bit different. This is not the kind of meal that you would prepare for Thanksgiving. Because their salvation would come in the morning, they must be ready to eat quickly. They must eat the meat roasted over a fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. In other words, if you have any cooks or bakers in the house, uh, you couldn't wait for a casserole to come out of the oven. You could not wait even for the yeast and the bread to rise. During the Exodus, every Israelite was gluten-free, okay? (laughs) 
Finally, the last thing, they were told to eat their meal with their cloaks tucked in, their sandals on, and staffs in their hands. They were to eat in haste because it was the Lord's Passover. They must be ready to leave once their salvation arrives. That's amazing. It's an amazing moment in the history of God's people. And yet, even though the Israelites followed these instructions and they were delivered, they left Egypt with treasure, they left uh, Egypt with new cattle, they left Egypt free, their hearts were never quite ready for what would come next. Often the human response to God's call isn't faith, but fear. When Pharaoh released them from bondage, they were asked by God to move into an uncertain future. They desired freedom. Of course, they were slaves. But they also were worried about what might await them beyond the borders of Egypt. They feared what might be different because from their perspective, the change that God offered could be good or bad. And we see how this they might have thought this in several different ways. The Lord could come through, or he, could, uh, he might leave them in the wilderness to die. The plague, as the Lord uh, sent, convinced the people of God's power, but they still wondered whether he could be trusted. After all, he was fairly dangerous. All of these plagues were a little bit frightening. They struck terror in everyone, not just the Egyptians. Like C.S. Lewis writes about the godlike lion, Aslan, and the Narnia books, Yahweh retained a sense of genuine danger and uncertainty. He might have been good, but he wasn't really safe. Following that God into the desert was a little bit risky. This reluctance, their reluctance, can be seen throughout the rest of the story of Exodus. When Moses asked Pharaoh to release them in Exodus 5, the people didn't rejoice, but they complained that Yahweh had just made their life harder. He said, you've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his servants, and you've put a sword in their hands to kill us. When Pharaoh's army threatened to overtake them in Exodus 14, the people cried out, were there no graves in Egypt that you took us to die out here in this wilderness? In Exodus 16, they, they get hungry and they doubt the Lord's intentions. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by uh, pots full of meat. We ate bread to the full, and you've brought us out here to die of hunger. Same thing happens in Exodus 17 when they get too thirsty. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? These complaints, these doubts continue into the promised land. Even though the Lord provided miracles of power and love and provision in the midst of their trials, the people remained a little bit wary of him. They followed Moses. They did. They followed him, but they weren't quite ready to be God's people, much less a nation designed for his glory. Yahweh broke the chains of the Egyptians, but their hearts remained enslaved to their fear. On the surface, they were free, but underneath, they preferred the comfort of their routines to the uncertainty of an unknown future. Even though God had promised that what was ahead was so good, they were worried that it wouldn't come to pass. We are familiar with this kind of thinking. And despite God's prior goodness to us, we still question his faithfulness. We still question his power. We still question his commitment 
that he cares about us and wants uh, what is best for us. Instead of following uh, called into the unknown where anything can happen, we doubt God has our best interests at heart. Instead of following him into the un to the new life that he promises, we pull away. When he calls, we stand still or we run in the opposite direction. We never seem ready to trust the God who loves us. While the Israelites show how fear leads to reluctance and rebellion, the apostles show something different. They show how trust leads not just to obedience, but transformation. Now, the important thing to remember with the apostles is that when they began their journey as disciples, they were normal people living normal lives. There's nothing uniquely special about them. Much like the Israelites, they were unprepared for the living God to step into their world and change everything. Like the Israelites, they recognized this new teacher was from God and they accepted his call to become his disciples. Accompanying Jesus in his earthly ministry, they encountered miracles. And they heard the promises of God from their rabbi and their friend. But even as they walked with him, their hearts were never open to complete surrender. For them, following Jesus was a combination of risk and reward. Uh, uh, Jesus could be a prophet that reformed the religious system, the temple, Uh, He could be a military leader that expelled the Roman Empire. He might be the Messiah himself, but he could also cost them everything. Damaged reputations and lost security were the price they'd already paid to follow him. And every time that Jesus spoke against the Pharisees or the Roman Empire, their position in the community became less secure. When Jesus rose from the dead, their continued commitment to sharing the gospel routinely put them in mortal danger. Now, this shouldn't have surprised them. Jesus told them over and over again in his ministry that uh, they would experience suffering and persecution if they genuinely followed him. As a follower of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, C.S. Lewis wrote that we were promised suffering. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that suffer persecution. Like the Israelites, they remained afraid of what an uncertain future might hold. They were not ready to be true disciples, much less leaders of the new church. Their reactions to the arrest of Jesus reveal that fear. Instead of steadfast devotion, what do they do? They run. From the Roman guards, they retreat into hiding. They flat out deny that they know Jesus at all. But thankfully for them and for us, the Lord was ready. They might not have been ready to step into what God promised, but the Lord was ready for these unassuming fishermen. These reformed tax collectors, these radical zealots, these unremarkable businessmen to become something new. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, the apostles were given a clear picture of just how ready the Lord is to save and redeem and transform his children. And on the cross, the disciples didn't just see his power, they saw his love. 
They had a direct glimpse into the heart of God himself. And seeing how far their Lord would go for them assured them they could trust him, not just with their future, but their entire lives. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was a preacher uh, a few centuries ago, clarified the apostles' new approach to life like this. We cannot always trace God's hand, but we can always trust his heart. And his heart is full of love for you and me. Even though the apostles would daily face great danger and uh, risk death as they established the church in a broken world that raged against its creator, God's love anchored their identity and directed their mission. Notice their prayer for empowerment, to be bold, to stand up against the nations that are raging against the early church came after their release from jail, after the Pharisees had threatened them. They had been wrongfully imprisoned for preaching the gospel and received an explicit threat to stop what they were doing or the consequences would be more severe the next time around. In this scenario, most people would run from danger. In fact, that's what the apostles would have done before Jesus died and rose again. That is what they did before Jesus died and rose again. But the apostles had changed. Something inside had been rearranged and they were no longer afraid, but they rejoiced in their persecution. The cross proved nothing would, be, would ever be able to tear them from their Lord's hands. And so they were ready, finally, to respond in faith. And because of what Jesus does in us, we can be ready to respond in the same way too. We can be ready to live in the same way too. On our own, we will never really be ready for our Lord to enter our hearts and make us into something new. The process just seems too drastic. It looks like it will hurt. It's, we'd have to change a lot about ourselves and about our lives. And so we hold back and we never prepare for his arrival. But our Lord is always ready to move towards us. He is always moving towards us. Paul declares in Romans 5, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we weren't ready, Christ is always ready to make his home in our hearts so we can follow our God into the future without fear. As we move into an uncertain future, and even in our day and age, when we look at the news, our future is uncertain. There are wars and there are rumors of deeper war. We live in a culture where uh, everyone around us seems ambivalent or antagonistic to the name and the ways of Jesus. We can trust that God has already sealed our hearts and his love. That he has already reserved a place for us in eternity. That he is already working to make us new, to make us bold, to make us kind, to make us speak the truth with love. Because of the cross, we can be sure that our Lord walks ahead of us, ready to help us endure anything that comes our way. Transforming us into his true children, changing us from rebellious sinners into ever more holy sinners. 
saints. Even more amazing, however, is that our God prepares us to live in ways that bless others and extend the kingdom of God in this world here and now. Our God is ready to do that in us today. One of the main ways that churches falter when pursuing their mission is that they never explicitly outline what success or failure means. Things can get a little blurry, a little confused when that happens. For some churches, the goal revolves around numbers alone, how many people are coming or joined or found salvation, and those are all good things. But for our church, we understand those numbers are not goals but effects. They are consequences. They are consequences of steadily moving forward in the same direction together toward Jesus, allowing the Spirit to move in and among us. Our leadership here at this church is much more concerned with who we are becoming as individuals and a congregation. We are much more concerned with the spiritual growth of everyone who walks in these doors and helping them take their next step of faith and deeper connection with Jesus, of connecting uh, to Jesus, which is, after all, our new mission. We also firmly believe that when we are faithfully following Jesus and embodying the values of the kingdom, people will start to notice that we are doing something different, that we are people of light, that we are people of love, that we are people of joy and grace. And those people will start to come. Those numbers will start to come, but they're again an effect But at this point, it's important to ask the question, how do we measure our growth? So our team came up with a set of questions we believe will lead to both spiritual growth and a flourishing church when asked on a daily basis. And these questions, we have three, and this is what they are. Number one, how have I been blessed by God and how have I been a blessing to others? The second question we're encouraging everyone to ask on a daily basis is, how have I allowed God to transform me today? Second question is, how have I allowed God to transform me today? And the third question is, how have I grown in faith and love? Those are questions we want you to ask every single day of your journey of faith. When we ask ourselves these questions, we are able to figure out where we are and how we are growing. They are, in one sense, a way of checking to see if we are still shining in the ways Jesus wants of his children. That in a broken world, overcome by darkness, our actions and decisions, our choices and our relationships, our interactions with anyone we meet out in the world in our daily life, reflect his love and embody his grace. In a very real way, these questions ask us, are we ready to live out our faith? Are we ready to respond to the love God has already poured into this world in our own life through Jesus? And are we ready to share that love with others? Are we ready to govern, to grow into a life governed by the freedom of the Holy Spirit? Church, I believe that we are. 
This congregation exists to help you do exactly this, to grow in your faith, to remember what it means to follow Jesus and to share that love in the world. We are here to help one another grow into the people Jesus wants us to be here in this community, in this town, in this state, in this world. And so we ask these questions to remember who we are and what we're called to be and what we're called to do. So today and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives, let us remember that Jesus is always ready to help us grow. He is always ready to help us become his true children. In response, let us be ready for what Jesus is going to do next. Let us be ready for what the Spirit is going to do next here among us, inside us, and through us for our own good and his great glory. Hallelujah. Amen.